welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 353 and part two of my conversation with percussionist, educator, and the founder and director of the online percussion conservatory, Joshua Vonderheide. Let's get right to it. Last week, part one, which I hope you've already listened to, we heard from Josh about his orchestral career so far, the founding of the Percussion Conservatory, growing up in the Houston area, his competitive swimming career, and his undergrad years at Juilliard. This week, in part two, we'll get to hear about Josh's graduate work at Juilliard and why he stayed there, and at Rice University, as well as an extended version of our final segment of the show. This portion includes Josh discussing some personally challenging situations he's had to deal with recently, the art of good mentorship, great sports performers, movies and books, Indonesian food, and AI art, among many other items. So let's get to that. We recorded this conversation over Zoom on June 21st, 2023, and it begins right now. Uh, Why do you stay for a master's? The short answer was financial. Um, I was selected for the very first round of the Kovner Fellowship, the Juilliard Kovner Fellowship, which provides um, students usually about one of each in each department. So a couple for brass, maybe one or two for percussion, a few strings, a few vocalists. Um, They kind of spread it around a little bit. And there's something maybe about... 10 master students a year that they give this to and you get an incredible incredible package i'm not sure if any other schools really do this but at the time this was the only program i found like this so your tuition is completely erased you have no tuition you also receive a stipend on top of that for a very considerable amount to like live in an apartment somewhere near school or you can stay at the dorm 100% for free with meals for free. So, I mean, you are 100%, 100% comprehensively taken care of. In addition to this, you also receive tons of like free tickets to shows. They uh, would do all sorts of special events for us. We would get access to um, trainings about you know professionalism of, of different sorts, like stage presence and how to build your resume better and how to build a website and there's tons of different resources. You also had a fund that you could apply for and this, it was not unlimited, but within a reasonable amount, they would cover your audition expenses for like orchestra auditions, which would include flights. It would include the hotel while you're there, some food while you're staying there. Um, They supplied me a, a fund to get headshots taken so that I could, you know, look better for my recitals and on my website and promotional materials. I mean, it was so above and beyond the generosity of Bruce Kovner to start this program, I was like, I, I just, at the time, I was like, you know, a little bit going into debt, and my other options just did not provide that. The, I had also gotten into New England Conservatory, and I had gotten into uh, University of Miami at Frost. Those were the three schools I applied to. To go down to Miami was this new opportunity to study with Matt Strauss, who I had, like I had said before, huge idol of mine, really respected him, didn't know him that well, but just loved the way he played, loved his teaching style, uh, really wanted to work with him, but it was not like 100% scotch-free. You know, it was, you're going to have to do some amount of paying for your room and your board and your flights and your this, you know, all of those things. And so that was just really not possible when you're being offered the other thing. And then at NEC, they were in the middle of a massive reconstruction project, so they had very little scholarship money in general. I'm not sure if they were giving anyone any full rides or anything at that time, but it was, I know that it was limited and it was very tough. They, like their hands were, their hands were bound a little bit. Will Hudgens just gave me a great comment. He was so, so nice about it because that had previously been like my first choice. I was like, I wanna go to NEC, I wanna move to Boston, I wanna get some new information, everyone's going to NEC and winning jobs. You know, like, I really want to go to NEC. And he just said, man, just trust your ear, like trust your musical instincts. You're going to be fine no matter where you go. Like, don't worry about it. Thanks for coming to play. We tried our best. Like, I hope to see you around. 
Unfortunately, I have never seen him around, not even one time since this. So I hope he hears this and I hope he knows how gracious that was of him and how much that inspired me and his comments inspired me. I, I think the situation has changed. I, I would highly recommend that school to anybody. You know, that was my, that was my top choice at that time to go study there. Um, so that's why I decided to stay in New York. And then, you know, that was, that was the main thing. And also just because despite that freshman year B, you know, I got to study with Dan Druckmann and Marcus Roten, who were some of the most job placing people of all time, you know? So it was, it was sort of like, do you want the world's best tiramisu or do you want, you know, incredible Italian cream cake or something, you know, the, you want tres leches or there was no way I could go wrong. So I was just in a, I was in a really, really good situation after that round of auditions. And I just chose the, the best financial pathway for myself. For the masters, did you have a, an assistantship or was it literally like you were just getting to take classes and do whatever you are not required to do when you do the Covenant fellowship, there is no assistantship. You, you are a bit expected to attend events that they host, you yeah. want to make a good impression and be grateful, obviously, because these people are doing something superhuman for you, you know? So it's, it would be pretty atrocious to not like show any amount of gratitude and thanks for this overwhelmingly sized gift that they're providing, but there's not any additional work requirements. In, in fact, it's usually kind of the opposite. It's like previously I had been a resident assistant for my junior year and my senior year, I was an RA and that provided me free housing. The second year it provides you free housing and like some amount of food stipend or something. Um, and that was like massive, like when I received that position, but it was also a massive amount of work. Like, and you're kind of, now you're like a student police officer. Like it's not necessarily the coolest thing in the world to be an RA. And I had never, I had always been living in the dorms all four years there. So this was really cool during the masters. I lived off campus. Um, I, you know, I, I learned how to cook for myself cause I actually had time. I was eating healthier food. I was, everything was heightened. Everything was better about the masters. And that was all thanks to that fellowship. Yeah, it was huge. That was a life-changing acceptance letter for me. Two-year master's. And then, you know, I had, I had been having some audition success. I had been starting to advance at auditions. I had been in the finals for New Worlds twice and not gotten it. Um, it was just like, I felt like, I'm really close to the next step, but it just wasn't materializing. And I don't know if there was just something missing with my playing or if it's just a numbers game and it hadn't happened yet, you know, but it just hadn't happened yet. And so I was a bit scared, honestly, to be finishing a master's, like, what am I going to do next? And then I found out about this artist diploma program at Rice. And I really took a huge leap of faith that that was the only school I applied to for postmasters. So I went in there and I just said, I said to the whole panel, like point blank, like right in their face, I walked up to the table after I finished playing and I said, this is the only school I'm auditioning for. If you accept me here, 100% I will come because it's either this or I'm teaching lessons in Houston and that's my plan. And they, I think that that resonated with them because I had played well and that type of program, they're dealing with a lot of people who are getting accepted to a lot of places because the top talent from around the country gets accepted everywhere. You know, for artist diploma, like you're a singer, you get accepted for artist diploma, you probably got into like eight programs, you know? If you're a pianist and you get in, you got in everywhere. And so they're always dealing with this like circus of moving people around and who's actually gonna come. And so I do highly recommend that strategy or just that honesty, if you are really, really, really serious about a program and you don't have to worry too much about like negotiating your finances, like the, the artist diploma program is just a, it's tuition free again, you know, at Rice. It's an incredible program, super awesome program. And there's a small stipend. So if you get into that program, you're set. I mean, you're totally good for at least another two years. And that to me was really appealing because Druckmann had just said, you know, when I was graduating, he said, you know, all you really need at this point is just a place to practice. You don't really need a ton more teaching. You just need to practice and get better. So make sure wherever you go next, you have a practice room that you can get inside of a lot with decent instruments and you're going to be good to go. And so I half believed that and half I really wanted to study with Matt Strauss and like get some more instruction, you know, um, and that worked out. You know, I was at Rice and five months later I was employed. So it was, uh, th that was really like the, you know, my, 
icing on the cake. That was my cherry on top was, was going to rice. And it was really cool to be back home that year and have my family be able to come see concerts. And that was one of the last years that my grandpa was alive, that I was still here in the United States and he got to come and he got to see me play and do some stuff. And it was just really special being back home. So that was, I, I had a fantastically positive experience at rice. What seemed similar, different in terms of teaching styles, in terms of information gathered from Matt versus the others, uh, those kinds of things? You know, Matt is more pragmatic. Matt is all about making sure that you are going to get to your goal. He's very goal-oriented. He's very uh, practical, and he... One of the first things he said to me was, Josh, I know just what to tell you to get into finals. And I was like, hmm, that's, that's like a very comforting sentence. You know, that, that feels really good. And I think he also, just like Zuber did, or maybe he talked to the teachers, right? You know, these guys talk or whatever. But I think he just knew me from a personality perspective of what I needed. And I think that that's his other really deep skill is that he knows that every student is really different. And he teaches to the student in every situation I've ever seen him. I have seen him have wildly different interactions just in terms of even his pace of speech, his tone of voice, when he needs to get really excited with someone, when he knows that this person is totally an adult and they're totally mature and they don't need almost anything, they're just looking for you know, a couple tips here or there. He knows how to prioritize the time. This person needs more mock auditions. This person needs more, you know, in-depth one-on-one lesson. This person has a problem with snare drum. I can tell you that snare drum is the thing you're holding your back or cymbals or tambourine or whatever. So I think that, and some of this just has to do with being, you know, you get a little older and you just need to fix a few more things before you can get employed. But I felt like the teaching at Juilliard was just all about the well-rounded student. It was all about being able to do everything. So you needed to be able to play mallets, and you need to be able to do new music well. And you need to be serious about percussion ensemble, and we're also going to put you in a high-intensity performance situation where you're playing the vibraphone. And then we're also going, and it was just everything all of the time. That's the best situation ever for in undergrad and potentially for a master's if you didn't receive that in your undergrad. But it got to a certain point where I was like, I just want to play excerpts and win the job, guys. You know, like I really, 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 really need to be employed because otherwise I will not be employed and this, this, my life's going to get really difficult really fast. And so I feel like Matt understands that. He understands whether or not that's actually real or whether that's just some sort of imagined thing that students are having that makes them panic and freak out and have anxiety, he understands what it's like to have that anxiety and to have that feeling of like, I feel like I'm on the clock. I feel like if I don't succeed by a certain age or time or something, like I'm a failure. And I think that he saw that in me more than other teachers did. And he knew how to teach to me because of that anxiety. So he, I mean, it was like so fast that I felt like I got over that, you know? And it started from like day one. He was like, I know just what you need to get into finals. We're gonna, you're gonna be fine. You know, I'm gonna tell you exactly what you need to do. And it also sort of, <laughs> in a funny way, he might laugh at this, I hope he does. It established his dominance immediately. Like, I have the information, you know? Don't buck me, you know? Don't be the guy who comes in as the young buck and, oh, I came from Julia and I've already done the Kovner felt. No, 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 no. Like, I've been in the finals of every audition. I have won multiple jobs. I'm a ridiculous timpanist and a percussionist. Don't bring that New York attitude up in my practice room, you know? And I feel like he did it in the gentlest, nicest possible way. Like he, he never had to say it. It was just, he never said anything. And this might be totally in my head, but I felt like he was able to just like be the alpha of the studio in a really healthy way. I feel like uh, the only reason I bring that up is because I feel like sometimes I have seen other professors struggle with that. They have certain really, really difficult students who kind of in a way, run all over them, which is not good for anyone because then the student isn't necessarily going to achieve what they want to achieve. So I feel like Matt is, you can't run him over. He's like, an, he's an immovable wall. He's the, he's the old, what happens when, you know, when Chuck Norris is un, 
unstoppable kick meets an unbreakable wall, you know, you get, you get Matt Stroud. He's just very, very grounded and centered. And so that was, um, that was very helpful for me because it's exactly what I needed at that time. And I got exactly what I wanted. All right, Josh, I finish up with random ass questions. Yes, let's do it. All right. The RAQ, the random ass question. Yeah. Uh, first question, an issue in percussion education or percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts. It doesn't happen in America. It's overseas for me. So it's, it, I have seen that I mentioned it. I alluded to it earlier briefly that I have seen teachers defraud their students. I have seen them tell them that things are possible for them that are not possible for them if they listen to their current teacher, if they have access to the current information that they do, if they have access to the current instruments that they currently have access to. Oh, if you come study with me, this will happen for you. No, it won't. And so I am, I am very uh, dubious always of people who make too many promises. I think that that's not good for percussion education. The reality is, is that a lot of people don't end up making it because it's difficult in many ways. It's difficult financially. It's difficult from a time perspective. Are you willing to wait 15 years for your dream to happen? Or do you want your dream to happen in four years? I don't like people who promise the things to happen too fast. If you are out there right now and you are listening to this and you are 30 whatever or even 40 whatever and some opportunity that you have always wanted didn't happen for you, it is totally 100% possible for some version of that opportunity to still happen for you, 100%. And I think that people who get to that place and just kind of give up should not feel ever, ever, ever like a failure, you know? Um, I have a friend who was a very serious, not a percussionist, but just a very serious orchestral musician, very serious pedagogue who decided that they were like, man, just this opportunity that I thought was open for me is not going to happen anymore. And I want to be a coder instead. I want to go to boot camp and I want to become a coder. This person makes more than any, any per, you know, financially, like they're going to be doing better than any orchestral musician. Maybe the top 1% of orchestral musicians are on par or something. Right. And I think up until that moment happened for them, they had felt like somehow they were a failure this whole time. You know, because someone at some point said, this needs to happen before this time or, it, or it's never going to happen for you, you know. So I just really don't like in education people putting timelines on things. Um, certain people are ready for the information at a certain time. Other people take more time to marinate, you know. I, I thought I, I was one of those kids, you know, for sure. Oh, for sure. I'm going to be the guy who gets the job in my undergrad, 100%. And when I had to go do my master's, I felt like I had failed at that time. I felt like being 22 years old and not having a job, I was like, oh, well, I therefore am not the wunderkid who I thought I was, you know? I am not special. And like, that was, that was devastating for me at the time. And it really, it rocked me, you know? It rocked me a lot. And so I think that that's, that's something that needs to change. We need to have more conversations about things taking a long time because for most people they do for most people it takes 10 to 15 years relatedly because you were alluding to this but i want you to talk a little bit more about the mental the mental health side of this because i would imagine that the the ways that your the trajectory that your life has taken so far has pushed you in some of those directions and so i'm curious about how you've been able to maintain your own Mental health. No one's saying that I'm the uh, epitome of mental health or anything. No, I, I definitely. No. I mean, I definitely have days where um, things are tougher than others. I mean, my wife will speak to this more easily than I I can because she's the one who sees me go through all of it. But I mean, there have definitely definitely been days where I just feel like, is anything I'm doing making a difference at? all does this matter at all and funny enough the more the majority of the time that i had that feeling was while i was professionally employed with an orchestra i felt very very disconnected from my community during that time and then lo and behold the orchestra folded so i didn't even know that i was like 
inside of kind of like a dying cell, you know, that had no mitochondria, you know, there was nothing to promote and push this enterprise to the next level. And so the people around me who'd been there for a long time, I think they start, I, they saw, they saw the cracks, you know, in the foundation and they were more prepared. For me, it came as a bit of a, wow, like I was a real Bambi, you know, I was a real deer in the headlights, just, oh my gosh, everything just got taken away from me, you know? So that was tough. Uh, that was really, really difficult. Also, um, you know, there, there have been some things that have happened to me in my life that w had nothing to do with percussion, but certainly affect your percussion. Um, I'm not sure I've actually ever stated this publicly, but I lost a child, my wife and I. Uh, mm. We were about five months pregnant and the pregnancy became unviable and we just like lost our baby out of nowhere. And that was unbelievably difficult. And you have no like, you have nothing that can relate to that if you've been a, a classical percussionist right. to that point up in your life. You're not prepared for that emotion or that sort of thing. And I think this is the thing maybe that gets overlooked most of all in terms of mental health is just the, we talk all the time of the things that we can be prepared for. What do we do in these sorts of situations? What do we do for okay, I haven't won a job and it's been six years. Like I was just saying, well, you need to be patient. Okay, we can, we can, put, a, we can put a pin in that one because we understand it and everyone's gonna kind of go through the same thing. And, and we know what it's like to be struggling to be a teacher and you're teaching private lessons and you're trying to make it work, but you're still auditioning and it's hard to find the practice space and your neighbors say you're noisy and you're just trying to make it and you're trying to find that teaching job and do I need to go back to school and get a DMA and am I really willing to commit to this? It's another four years or whatever it is. I mean, we know those struggles, but what's really hard is when something just completely unrelated comes into your life and just kicks your butt, you mm -hmm. know, and that one really kicked my butt. And I, and so another reason you're asking, you know, why did you move back home to circle all the way back towards the beginning mm -hmm. of the interview? I needed support. You know, it was a really good time for me to be back home close to my family in a place where I was a citizen, a place that I knew a place I felt comfortable. Like, you're as much as I like to think, you know, I'm so strong and I'm Superman and I can do all these things and I have this successful platform and things are going well. It's like, there are things out there that might kick your butt for longer than a week. You know, it might kick your butt for a long time. And you might, again, I think the, the strategy that works with all things is just patience, not being afraid to ask for help. There are things that you can't process in in a way that makes sense. There are illogical things that your brain will do. There are things that are not in the canon of, I know how to deal with this. You know, you were saying, what as a percussionist, what do you do when you get in a rut? And I'm like, go for a run. Like, I don't think I could have run my way out of feeling like this situation was going to get better. You know, there's there was just work to be done on the healing journey and the grief journey and all of those sorts of things. So I would just advise people who are going through a tough time emotionally while trying to do anything, whether it's becoming a classical percussionist or not, it doesn't really matter. If you are going through something really, really difficult emotionally, make sure you are just kind to yourself. Make sure you tell yourself it's really, really okay if you're very, very angry. Or if you're not the best version of yourself for that season, you know, this might, you might look at yourself in the mirror and feel like, man, I know I'm better than this. And that is okay. You know, you, it's like, it's, you don't have to be the very, very, very best version, Instagram version of yourself right. all of the time. It's okay to kind of be in the ditch sometimes. It's okay to be in the gutter but you don't want to stay there forever. You need to get yourself out of it. So don't sit around feeling sorry for yourself, but you know, it's okay that you're not doing so great. Get around people who love you, you know? And if you don't have those people, if you don't have that, that network of like, I feel like I have supportive people to talk to, go on Instagram, put Gary Vaynerchuk in your ears. Do you, if you don't know this guy, go learn about Gary Vaynerchuk. He is awesome. 
He was really, really helpful in many aspects of life and business for me as, a, as someone who is just completely detached. I'll probably never meet this man in my entire life, but he just talks about positivity and how to not feel sorry for yourself and being patient and succeeding in business and succeeding in life and what it means to succeed and finding the things you love to do and how to find the things you love to do and how to find other people who love the things you love to do. And yeah, he, under Instagram, he's Gary V. He's not a, he's not the prodigal son or anything. He's not some sort of magician and he's not selling snake oil. He just, he gives a bunch of content away for free. That was very helpful for me to listen to while going through that time. Well, I thank you for saying that by the way. Um, and you know, I, I've, whether it's a miscarriage or something related, I know I, it's one of those things that I've, I've heard from friends or others where it's like, it's so rough. <laughs> cause you know, cause the thing that like yeah. what Josh is not saying is that that time period, most people are like, they're super pumped for you and they're like ready for like, you yeah. know, they're ready in so many ways. And like, and to have when it gets taken away like that, it's it's very easy to just decide to to like go away, yeah, and not share, and just to be like we're just going to be in this depression hell for. Yeah. So I, I I'm I'm sorry you had to. Deal uh, with thanks. That. Yeah, I mean, no, it is it is very healthy to share, and I think one of the things that was so tough about that experience is that it hadn't happened to anybody in my life that I had ever had a conversation with about it. I had no, it's not talk, but it's not, but partially because people don't want to talk about this because people don't want to talk about it. It's hard to talk about, you know, it is hard. Yeah. It's hard to talk about without like getting really emotional. And, Mm -hmm. And I think that's why honestly, like publicly, I haven't been able to talk about not because so much I didn't want to share, but because I do want to for things that get recorded forever that go out onto the airwaves i didn't want to be sitting blubbering crying all over myself you know on a on an interview that's going to last forever and and so there were a number of times where yeah i just i absolutely was not going to bring that topic up because i had no ability to control myself and my emotions and what was going to happen and where that conversation was going to go until I had had that conversation multiple times with people I trusted. And then I started sharing a little bit more publicly, like I had said it in a master class to a couple kiddos, you know, like someone, we have a tattoo of her name. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can't really show it very well. And you guys aren't watching the video anyway, but uh, we have a transliteration of her name. Her name was Kimberly and it's Jin Bailey. And so, uh, you know, those, I have Chinese characters of her name as a tattoo on my arm. And sometimes people ask me what that means. And I have to tell them what it means. And I, it was kind of intentional. I was like, I think the only way I'm ever going to get through this is if I tattoo her name on my arm that we had given this name to our child and just talk about it and share her life and be very, you know, positive about the, the things that she brought to our life. And so that, that process, you know, to, to zoom out a little bit is really just more about remembering that people are actually in general, a lot more kind than we like to think people kind of are universally good. And I have never, ever, ever told someone about that experience. And then that person just like dogged on me a bunch or asked me a bunch of terrible, mean questions or, you know, everyone is very supportive and very empathetic or sympathetic if they haven't ever seen this happen to someone. And, um, uh, yeah, if you're going through something, just share, you know, you don't have to share it on Instagram or on Pete Zambito's percussion podcast, but you, you might want to share it to someone, someone you trust. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to rev back up with some other okay. questions. <laughs> uh, again, thank you for saying all that. We appreciate it. So, uh, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? <laughs> Oh, no. And I'm offended because they say, you know, imitation is the fondest form of flattery, which means I'm super, super, super not important enough in this world for anyone to think, oh, I'm going to spend time learning how to do an impression of Joshua Vonderheide. That I'm uh, I am dismayed at the lack of impressions. Um, No, I don't have one. Does somebody have one? Have you seen one? I, I 
Of you? I don't know. I, See, exactly. This is what I'm saying. You have no idea. You don't even know if they exist. That's, that's <laughs> terrible. I'm such a, I, I'm a, I'm a tiny ant, but uh, no, I, I, uh, I don't, I can't say that I have someone who's done an impression of me. No. Gotcha. All right. Someday it's going to happen. Someday. Yeah. yeah it'll be, um, what's the most impractical item of clothing you own? Well, okay, funny. That's very funny. I think I still have in, in somewhere in the back of my closet what's called a jammer, which is like a, a speedo, but it's not a speedo speedo. It's a speedo that goes down to like halfway down your leg, like halfway down your thigh. Yeah. But uh, the past year of being a Texas school teacher and then trying to do every gig imaginable and run the PC, I have definitely gained about 15 pounds and it absolutely no longer fits and it's somewhere in that closet i've got a teeny weeny speedo jammer that absolutely will not go over my thigh so that would be pretty impractical um and then i you know for a while i was still really really into frisbee so i had yeah. some uh when i was learning how to what's called lay out like dive in a forward position Ooh. i used to wear some pads because i didn't want to eat up my shins and my knees or you yeah. know anything else and so, so somewhere also in the closet i've got like a bunch of shin guards that are full of weird turf and dirt and all all that sort of malarkey yeah it's, i've got a funny somewhere in there i've got a funny back of my closet gotcha nice what was the worst job you had growing up it was more of a chore than a job yeah. but i was I did get paid small amounts for my chores and I was responsible for the cat's litter box, mm. which was, you know, scooping poop is like, that's kind of bottom of the barrel. You know, I, yeah. I'm sure there are some very, very successful septic engineers who would like to disagree and they're very proud of their career, but sure. I am not necessarily so fond of the poop picking. So mm. that was not the, that was not the best job. This, on, <laughs> this is so terrible to say, but this past year of um, teaching sixth graders was really hard for me. It was so hard for me. This was not growing up. This was last year. I, and it was, it's this same part of myself that I, I've been talking about this whole podcast of like, oh, I'm going to crush it. You know, like I am finally a professional <laughs> percussionist. It's going to be no problem teaching sixth graders, you know, that's like step one, just teach them how to hold the stick. Here's your fulcrum, here's your wrist, move the lever, bop ba dot. And I came into the class and I'm not joking, there were mallets in the ceiling. And the ceiling was like huge. It was a nice, very, very nice band hall. And the ceiling is like 30 feet in the air. And there were ceiling mallets. And I was like, I am doomed. Like I, I really struggled. I did very well, I think, with the high schoolers, I did very well with a group of seventh and eighth graders and like the top band, but those sixth graders just ate my lunch, dude. It was rough. And so I have huge, huge props to anyone who is teaching in the public education system, especially large groups of sixth graders. I had 14 of them and it was my first year doing it. And I, yeah. I accepted that job during marching band camp, which means like two weeks after I accepted the position, I was already in the room teaching sixth graders and I had no like curriculum or lesson plan or game plan of what to really do. And yeah, that was, that was really hard. They're just, you know, they're squirrely. They're good kids. They're good kids. They're just squirrely. Yeah. Yeah, you can't uh, impress them with uh, your your ability to play Shahrazad soft snare drum. It's not gonna it's not gonna work for them. They don't care at all about yeah. how good you are. They only care <laughs> if you know how to scold them at the right moment in the right way. You know, yeah. like if you can gain their trust by saying like "No, stop," then then you'll have them. You know, you have them captivated if they respect you. But if you go in thinking like "Oh, this is gonna be easy because I know percussion very well," yeah. nope. Nope. Zero relatability yeah. from being a percussionist and being a good percussion teacher. Those are different skills. So yeah, all the education majors out there, man, listen up, listen to your teachers because reality hits and it's not so easy, man. Have yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah. third, third movement of Shahrazad doesn't, doesn't have the same, uh, that snare part is not, is, is not going to get the same traction in, in an 11 year old. Attorney. Yeah. They don't quite, uh, it's not so, uh, captivating for them. Not quite yeah. the most gripping thing they've ever heard in their entire life. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Just shocking. I know it's, it's a hard, <laughs> thing to hard to believe, hard to yeah. believe. Gotcha. 
right. Uh, what's a great movie? What's a terrible movie? Ooh, I'm so basic on this one, but I love The Matrix. I, oh, yeah. Fact, that is a great movie. I, Still pretty, a great movie. I am pretty sure that The Matrix is my favorite movie. I would go out on a limb and say it is my favorite movie. That's because... I think for me, it's about transcending any barrier. No, like no matter what you take away from that movie, mm-hmm. it's really about the idea that you can achieve. You know, you can you can be who you want to be and do the thing you want to do. And here you go. And there's so many allegories and there's so much analysis of the Matrix. But what I take away from that whole trilogy uh, is just that you know anybody has that inside of them if they choose to. It's all about choice. Like that movie is 100% about choice and believing in yourself and altering your reality based on your thoughts and your beliefs in yourself. And that is a very resonant topic with me. Really makes sense to me a lot. And it's a lot, has, has a lot to do with how I teach. So that's, I get chills just thinking about The Matrix. I love that movie. Bad movie. Oh my gosh. Do you know, have you, well, it's, a, it's so bad that it's good, but it is the worst movie of all time. Uh, the Room, the original. I, I thought you were going to, that's where I thought you were going. Yeah. Yeah. But it's so, I mean, The Disaster Artist, which is the movie yeah. about that movie, is quite great with yeah. Franco, you know, with James oh, yeah. Franco. He does a really good job. But when I watched that movie, The Room, for the first time, it hadn't, I watched it with a group of people that also like just didn't know what it was going on. Like yeah, yeah. they had just been recommended to watch this movie because it was funny. And I watched that movie when I was like 12 or some ridiculously <laughs> way, not, too, way, way too, way too young age, right? <laughs> so I was like 12 watching The Room and I watched it from like cover to cover, right? From beginning yeah. to end, from yeah. scene one to scene thin. And mm-hmm. I was like, that is just no debate the worst movie that has ever been made and you have to and you start analyzing the movie about like i don't think you could make a worse movie because it's so well bad like yeah. I, that's that's like not even a sentence but it is so well bad like yeah. I, I can't describe it if you haven't seen that movie it's not worth your time but if you accidentally watch that movie you'll know what i'm talking about yeah 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 that's fair enough all right what's a favorite book i really enjoyed when I was a young man, I really enjoyed a book called Ender's Game, which got, oh, yeah. turned, which cool. got turned into a movie. And that was another one of these books that's all about uh, perspective and things not always seeming what they are supposed to be. But if anyone wants to read it, I won't say more than that. And then I was very captivated by the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I read all of those books when I was in grade school. And... Uh, I I enjoyed very, very much that the books really try to humanize even the evil characters, that Mm -hmm. there is sort of this uh, gray area, if you read the books, that it's not really black and white, good versus evil. The movies are a lot more black and white, and just in terms of Sauron is bad, and then Gandalf is great. And Frodo is, you know, but the books like really dive more deeply into the subtleties of what it means to stand for a cause that you believe in. And I think that that shaped some of what I like to think I have in myself of my own integrity of like Mm -hmm. standing up for the things I believe in. I think that that those sorts of books are still with me today. Like when I made this decision to move back home. Like, I don't want to be part of this organization anymore. That really more than anything else was about like me believing in something like believing in myself that I was going to be okay if I moved, you know, but also believing that I, 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 that I didn't believe in what this organization stood for at that time. You know, I was like, I don't like what's happening here and I don't want to be a part of it. And it was the worst financial decision ever, but it was the best decision for me, you know? And so I think that you're going to face those types of crossroads in your life at some point. And I read, I read those books when I was like 11. And I remember thinking about, you know, one particular like scene from from the movies which are probably more popular probably more people have experienced it when just they're making this decision of who will take the ring to mordor you know who will do this and they're all kind of arguing about what should happen and where it should happen and why it should happen 
And Frodo just stands up and he's the littlest one of all of them. And he says, I will take the ring. And everyone just like stops and everyone goes silent and they can't believe that what's called this little halfling, this hobbit, is the one who's going to take the ring to Mordor because clearly he stands no chance of being able to get this ring to Mordor except for his own belief that someone must do this. And because he takes this leap and because he's willing to go, everyone decides to join him. And so I think that for me that's a very powerful memory that like a a core belief that I have that was formed a little bit by reading those books and watching those films that, you know, if you, if you really believe in something, if you really stand for something, if it's very important and you believe in it a hundred percent, other people will follow you. You know, other people will join on your team if your heart is good and pure and you have a good idea for what you want to do and why. And it's one of those, again, it's one of those reasons why I've just been so blown away at the support that professional teachers, professional educators have given the percussion conservatory, you know, and people like yourself who are willing to have me on a podcast and people who are just trying to amplify in any way that they can something that they feel like, you know, let's try this thing. Like, let's give this kid a shot. Like, let's just see where this goes. Maybe it will be successful. Maybe it won't, you know, but what we have seen so far is just that a lot of people believe in it, are rallying behind it, are excited about it. And that makes me feel incredible, you know, and I'm not going to go as far as to say like that I'm Frodo on this incredible mission or something, but I do, I do feel like that, that book helped me with these sorts of journeys that are not like, oh, this is going to take a week. It's like, this is going to take 20 years. You know, the PC is going to take 20 years to really do properly. So it's exciting for me, you know, to have people like yourself on this journey with me and other people helping me on the pathway. Gotcha. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. We talked about sports through the swimming mastery that you uh, you got on out on top, as you mentioned. From <laughs> sure, uh, but do you have sports fandom? Not really. I am not a huge sports fan, frankly, just because I really don't have the the <laughs> the, the energy for it. I think being a sports fan is truly one of the most like belligerently energetic things that you can do with your life. I, 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 my dad was a big sports fan. And so he was really into the new England Patriots, the Boston Red Sox. He, yeah, (laughs) the wincing, I'm getting wincing on the other side, on the other side of this podcast. Well, as a New Yorker, all those things just made me like kind of Totally cringe. Yeah. Eternally so gag. So he grew up an hour, an hour outside of Boston. And so when okay, I was that's fine. Up, I'll allow that. I'll allow right. that. He yeah. grew up an hour, hour outside of Boston. So that I mean he was into all the Boston teams, right? I mean, he's he's a Bruins fan, right? He's he's Boston through and through. Every Boston, he's a Celtics fan, every Boston team, right? Yeah. Allegiance. Um and so being here in Texas, I was still kind of rooting for those teams, but I I just never really got that caught up in it. I was I was always way more inspired by the the people who had, you know, sort of beaten every single odd on this solo mission. I guess that really resonated with me more at the time. I felt like I was doing something that like, uh, wasn't the normal thing to do, like getting the classical music degree. All my friends were being, uh, doctors and i have one friend who's an architect and one friend who's a surgeon and one friend who's in uh finance and another that's all the kids that i was surrounded with were all going to do cool things even one friend at spacex i mean my my friends like really went off and did a bunch of amazing things but very very few of them besides kelton cook who is now in the vienna philharmonic um were, were doing the classical music route i really liked you know, watching Federer play, Rafael Nadal play. I really liked watching Tiger Woods play. I liked watching, um, even like, even with basketball, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed watching, uh, Kobe Bryant or, or Stephon Curry or just someone who was like, had achieved just unbelievable success in these sorts of things. I followed swimming for a while. Like I was saying, Brendan Hansen, Michael Phelps, um, Patty Ledecky. Uh, I mean, there, there, were, there were a number of people who really like resonated with me. And that, that whole, like the whole Lance Armstrong thing was sad. You know, this was like, 
how, how am I supposed to feel about this? You know, it's like, ah, what do I do now? Ah, this hero, blah, tainted. Um, <laughs> you know, and the, the Icarus, if you've ever seen this, there's this incredible, incredible documentary called Icarus, which is all about drugs and cycling. Mm, yeah. And it's fantastic. I, rem- I recommend that film to everyone. Put that one on your good films list. So yeah, sports, sports fandom is a little bit lacking, although I did very recently in my super niche hometown go to a Sugarland Space Cowboys minor league baseball game, and okay. we won, and there was a home run, a two-run home run, a three-run home run, a grand slam, a walk-in for the win in the bottom of the ninth. I mean, the, like this game had everything, and it was my wife's very first baseball game, oh, and wow. so she didn't know anything about baseball and i was trying to tell her like you've just witnessed maybe it's never getting better than this this exciting (laughs) baseball game of all time and she and she was bored after the first 30 minutes she like watched 30 minutes she's like wow a home run wow this is the ball moves really fast wow he throws the ball really hard and then she realized there's nine innings of this this game lasts three hours and she was completely completely just like oh no it's like you could just feel her getting like soggy just like soggy cereal you know just like sinking into the seat but yeah not not too big into sports fandom fair enough because you were in uh malaysia yeah and working uh what food from there do you miss the most Mm. This is the best question of the entire podcast. (laughs) So for anyone who has not been to Southeast Asia yet, you need to run. Don't walk, which I mean, you can't, you have to fly, but get there as fast as possible and go eat everything because it will really open up your mind to just the culture over there and how they see things and how they do things. I really feel like food is the easiest way to explore someone's culture that you don't know anything about. It's just, you have this instant visceral feeling of, Oh, like I know what, I know what's going on here a little bit. I've, I've made first entry, you know? And so they have a dish over there called beef rendang, which is mostly an Indonesian dish but they have a version of it in Malaysia that's really good. And thankfully, there are some places here in Houston that make this dish. There are Malaysians who are living here. There are Indonesians who are living here and Filipinos. And so there are a number of uh, really great places for me to still eat that food. And, and in general, I don't think there's any one particular thing missing, except there, maybe there's one food that I've only ever eaten like twice in my life that I don't, I, I don't think they really make it properly anywhere else, which is called Sarawak Laksa. And there's a Laksa place, this is in East Malaysia. So Malaysia is split up into the Western Peninsula and then the Eastern side that also connects to like Brunei and Indonesia. And on the eastern side of Malaysia, there's this town in Sarawak that's called Kuching. And in Kuching, they, there's this famous bowl of Sarawak laksa that even Anthony Bourdain raved about. It's like one of the epitomes of eastern Malaysia cooking. And to this day, I think that might be the best just soup. If I had to say all of these things get labeled into the category of soup, then Eastern Malaysian Sarawakian Kuching Laksa. Yeah, Sarawak Laksa is like in a league of its own. And not all of them are good because lots of different shops make it. But this one particular shop that makes it, it was like just mind-numbingly good. I, they, they spend the whole previous day every day making it. So like basically people eat it for breakfast. So mm. like they eat, everyone goes in, you eat it for breakfast and it's sold out in two hours. And yeah. then they spend the entire rest of the day preparing it for tomorrow's breakfast nice every day you know and that's just their life they make this bowl of soup and their shop's not that big and it's just always a line it's just a line and you just wait and this is in east malaysia you know it's like on the other side of the world it's it's difficult it's a little bit different than over here where you can generate so much hype like on social media or you know you have funding for your google ads campaign and then people look at you on google this is not like that like this is just a shop that Anthony Bourdain found and said, like, you know, he trusted the locals and all the locals pointed to this one place. And he goes to make part of his documentary about this bull. And now it's, you know, it's both a local and a tourist phenom restaurant, you know, so it's, yeah. it's really, really delicious. Cool. Very good. All right. But now uh, 
when you when you came back to Houston, yes, what was the what was the place that you're like, okay, we have you better have this at home. Uh, like when I get home, mm. or I'm not talking to anyone until this is in my belly, <laughs> like that. This again is so. It's. I feel like this answer is so lame because it's not like a high quality food. Sure. But what a burger! <laughs> I love. Whataburger, and they don't have Whataburger in Asia. Like it's, I mean, yeah. they have McDonald's, they have Burger mm-hmm. King, they yeah. don't have Whataburger. And Whataburger mm-hmm. is just the not the chicken burgers. The chicken burgers are terrible, but the beef burgers at Whataburger, the double supersize Whataburger with mustard and everything else on it, especially if you go double cheese and jalapeno, is ridiculous and it takes them way too long to make it and they often forget your fries but that's sort of the charm and you just go to a whataburger and it's way too late at night and they're still open and there's one guy flipping the whataburger and i i don't even know how it tastes good but it's just like nothing else is open but there's whataburger and it hits the spot and i I, that was like a especially while i was at rice and i had been like kind of exploring houston more and eating my own food for the first time um like being in texas because when I was a kid, my parents are obviously doing most of that. That was a, you know, that was like a classic staple. Rice University studio would go and get a Whataburger on Holcomb Boulevard. You know, it's like mm. you're just, it's just, it was a spot, you know. So that that was nice. That really, when you eat a Whataburger, you're immediately, you're like, I am in Texas, you know. <laughs> Instantly, you're just yeah. like, okay, this is the Texas grease that I have not eaten for 10 years. And it hasn't changed at all, you know. Yeah. I got gotcha. you. Nice. All right. Uh, strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? Well, oh man, it wasn't, thankfully this was in a rehearsal, but I was in Verbier and I thought that I might've like killed someone because I was playing with those really super heavy and thick Abel style bass drum beaters. Mm -hmm. And we were doing a Mahler and I was, I was doing a roll that ended in a big note and I was rolling on this bass drum, rolling on this bass drum and I was a student and I wasn't thinking and I, and I broke the bass drum head, right? And it's like Whoa. calf bass drum head and you're in the mountains. When's the next time they're gonna ship a 36 inch calf head bass? I mean, I felt terrible. Like we didn't have a, we didn't have a calf head on the batter side for like- Was, the it, the, rest was it the loudest sound you'd heard in your it, entire life? So the, the reason <laughs> the reason that I thought I might've killed someone is because I was, I was rolling, rolling, rolling and I went, Woom! And I just felt the mallet come out of my hand. Ah! So I was like, "Oh my goodness! I have thrown the bass <laughs> drum beater!" And I didn't hear it like go clack 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 all over the floor, right? So oh. I was like, "I think it's hit someone, probably in the head." <laughs> I'm like, my life is over, you know. I'm like, I'm doomed. I have yeah. just murdered. I'm about to be fired. I'll say yeah. goodbye to everyone. Yeah. I mean, hundred percent. And and so and I'm like, and I couldn't find. And for so for all, I'm like looking around, like where is it? I'm like looking, 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 searching for the bass drum beater. And then you know, whatever. Five seconds later, six seconds later, however long it was, I notice the bass drum beater is inside of the bass drum, and the head is just not just broken. I mean, it was shattered it wasn't like a small rip it was like you have donked it you're an idiot like it was not it did not go over well with zuber and nisley and the other guys who are out there and they're just like really man like there is no way we're gonna get another one of those by the time this festival so i mean it was like two weeks until all the concerts you know and so yeah it was uh that was unfortunate, but uh, that was a that was a bizarre experience just because of the panic that set in right after breaking the head. I think that one was bizarre, and then there was another. There was one other performance where um, there was a a very funny glissando that happened on uh, Britain Young Person's Guide, where there had been a triangle mounted, and yeah. right before it goes into sort of like the giant big cannon feud, bam, 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 ba da da da. Right before all of that happens, there's this big gliss that often people will play, you know, on the xylo, I think xylo or marimba or whatever, and um, and this big, big glissando is happening, and the mallet from my colleague goes off of the xylophone, because they're, they're swiping off to the right, ascending gliss, and hooks the triangle and then just sends the triangle. Another, this is another flying things across the stage story. The triangle goes flying across the stage. But before it has a chance to hit the ground, 
it careens and skids and bounces off of like three other mallet instruments that had been set up for all of the other like pieces, like these new music pieces that were also on the concert. It was like a weird program during school. And so you just hear this able triangle, super thick going, and like the, the fugue, you know, this giant cannon supposed to be happening, the most epic part of the end of Young Persons, and it's supposed oh. to be so beautiful. And, and I'm looking at my colleague, and, we're, and he's looking at me, and he's just in, I mean, it's nothing funnier has ever happened still to me to this day of just the sound, the sound of this triangle, just, oh my gosh, so many bounces. It felt like, in, I'm sure it was like three bounces. It felt like a hundred bounces. It was so loud, you know. That was a good one. That one really made me smile, and I, I, will, I will hold that one dearly for all time. But the colleague will, again, remain nameless. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> nice. All right. Joshua, last question. One piece of art, uh, any genre, b- books, movies, um, YouTube, theater, visual art, poetry, anything, has impacted you the most recently? Recently? Oh, okay. Well, that's a really cool question because very recently, there, the, the original painting of The Little Blue Devil by Paul Klee, which than the, the variation and themes are based up on the vibraphone uh, excerpt. But this, there's this painting by Paul Klee of The Little Blue Devil, and I was researching it because I was looking into how to create AI art for a project that I'm doing on the website. And I'm, I'm creating all these cover art pieces of uh, AI art that is gonna like match every excerpt so that we have some cool visual to go along with our practice tracks and a bunch of other stuff we're doing. So I'm learning how to make this AI art. I'm learning about prompt generation and chat GPT and all the different things that are required in order for you to do a really good job of creating cover art for with using AI. And I'm noticing that no matter what I do, I cannot create anything that looks like The Little Blue Devil by Paul Klee. And I, I saw all this other cover art, like so many other examples of, okay, type in Scheherazade, and let's look at the cover art that's been used in the past hundred years of people playing Scheherazade and see what Deutsch Grammophon put on their CD and then take some sort of amalgamation of all the different theories about what we should put on that cover and then okay let's go with an arabian princess woman and then she's like she's kind of a belly dancer or maybe she's nude in this one or maybe this right and you can tell the ai all sorts of different prompts and they will create really cool images maybe around that theme and i i must have tried to create something that looks like the little blue devil for like an hour and a half (laughs) and i just couldn't nothing that i was happy with and it really spoke to me just about how original Paul Klee was as an artist. Like it was very, very hard to define. And I'm sure that if I got better at this, it would get easier for me because this is my first foray into making AI art. But I was, I mean, it was like, I had, to, I had to tell the AI, you know, the texture of the materials of the canvas and the, the geometric shapes that he was using. And is he, an, is he an expressionist or is he a surrealist or is this sort of like somewhere in between a Matisse? Is it cubism? Is it, should I say that it's a Picasso style? Should I say that? And I, I just went down this rabbit hole of figuring out what I could do to make anything that resembled Paul Klee's Little Blue Devil and ultimately just was like, it's impossible. I'm going in a different direction <laughs> because it was just, it was too specific. Um, and so that one really resonated with me. And I think it's, I think it's very, very cool that with all the advancement in you know technology and with all the things that are happening, that ultimately it's this It's all driven by this like original human experience of like creation, you know, of just this creative mindset, like AI only knows what we tell it to know. And so I think doing this project of AI art for the first time actually made me feel a lot more secure about what AI will mean and what it will do for us as artists, um, both in music and beyond, that it will really only ever be a tool for you to you know, explore with. It's never really going to fully replace artistic uh, impression, artistic instigation, artistic creation, you know, whatever term, that, that spark, that initial idea, AI only knows what is already there. And so it can try to create new things. It can certainly create new pathways. Like we've seen AI, for example, defeat every uh, 
player at a game in China that's called Go. Are you familiar? I'm not sure if you're familiar with this board game, but it's like a strategy game that's kind of like, it's not Chinese chess, but it's kind of like as complicated as chess is. It's like, it's practiced only by like the masters and you, and you can get ranked and you can be a professional Go player, right? And so it's a, it's like a very, it's a square board and you have all these little circles that have to be put in a certain positions. And the AI was able to basically destroy every current Go master. And it wasn't even close. And it destroyed them so thoroughly in the competition that it was able to, you know, teach these guys like brand new strategies that had never been explored before. While that is really amazing and you could say, well, see, AI is taking over. It's like, no, it's not. Who invented the game? You know, like who made up the game of Go? Yes, AI might have made it more efficient. AI might have, you know, conquered this sort of thing, but it will never really take away that very first artistic license that belongs to the creator. So I would say if that is in any way something that you're considering as being a fear, don't be afraid, like lean into it, like super, super lean into all the tools that are available. Because as what I call myself, you know, a bit of a solopreneur, like someone who's being an entrepreneur, but mostly doing right now all the work myself, uh, some of it divvied up to a few other people, but mostly it's, it's kind of me sitting at my computer doing stuff. It's invaluable. You know, I'm able to get so much more done and I'm going to be able to do projects that never would have existed if I had to like hire someone for $50,000 a year or even like, hey, I want to make 100 pieces of cover art. Okay, well, that's going to cost $50 per piece of cover art. Cool. I can't afford that immediately. So now we have no cover art for this project. It's like, well, maybe we don't have the best cover art in the world, but every single piece will have a very original, cool looking version of some cover art for this. You know, that's... The, and, I, and I've only scratched the surface, you know, that's just like one week into designing and learning. So I can only imagine people who've done this their whole life, graphic designers who've done this whole life, what they're going to be capable of. So I think as musicians, we'll, we'll be able to harness some of those really cool uh, tools as well whenever they come our way. I'm sure people in that field might know more than I do. <laughs> What a real pleasure it was to chat with Joshua for these past two episodes. I wish him the best of luck in his future endeavors and hopefully get a chance to meet up with him very soon. And I very much appreciate his support of this show over the years. Thanks again, Josh. This week's rave is the 2023 film Past Lives, starring Greta Lee, Teo Yu, and John Magaro and written and directed by Celine Song. Now in theaters. I was excited to see that this movie was playing at our local art house theater, as it was heralded in some circles I regularly read as the first great movie of 2023. And it finally came. The film stars Greta Lee as a playwright living in New York City with her playwright husband, played by John Magaro, who reconnects with her South Korean childhood crush, played as an adult by Tao Yu, decades after she left her home country of South Korea. And it's a place that he never left and lost touch with her. While Greta Lee has been acting in films and TV shows for well over 15 years, this is her first starring role. This is also writer-director Celine Song's first feature film, doing both roles, T.O.U. has been heavily involved in South Korean TV and film for a while, and John Magaro has mostly been in smaller roles for films and TV shows over a long time. I mention all of this because everyone involved in the film is taking on a leading role for one of the first, if not the first time, in their careers, and all are fantastic. This is one of the best stories I've seen in movies for quite a while. I mean, the idea of reconnecting with a long-lost love has been done before. I mean, it's essentially the setup for all Hallmark Channel Christmas movies, I think, but I, I don't watch any of that crap. Putting it into a fuller context that shows how folks have grown up or moved on or not, and how this relates completely to one's current actual life is done spot on in this film. The writing and directing for Celine Song is excellent. And John Magaro as Lee's current spouse and Tao Yu 
as the adult version of the boy who remained in Korea, really good as the characters vying for or capturing Greta Lee's affection. But this is Greta Lee's film. It's her first starring role, and she's tremendous. Her character is dealing with so many emotions that exist in the framework of a generally low-key person, and the U.S.-born actor is doing so while also showcasing her fluency in Korean. And the movie takes you on a wonderful journey through all of these folks' lives. If you can, go to the theater and see Past Lives. You'll be glad you did. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show's on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.